Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chinooki. We acknowledge the Satuna, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Hey, Rayad. Hey. So yeah, you you take it away, and of course I'll absolutely interact with you. I won't leave you hanging if uh, if you need a moment to to catch yourself to catch yourself up to the story or whatever's going on. It's all good. Okay, cool. Because I I tried to start writing the timeline last night, but I got so overwhelmed because I happened to go so far back in, into mm. my past, and I was like, no, I am just gonna let my higher power work through me tonight, and he's going to guide my words and, and my story and he's one that can remember it better than I can perfect um since since he wrote it and um so anyway um my first introduction to alcohol started when I was eight years old and we were on a uh, friend's yacht in in Germany and um my dad and his friend were drinking rum and coke and every time he would get up and go look at something or you know go talk to somebody we'd run by his drink and take sips off of it and uh, we never did get caught or if they did they didn't say anything then moving forward uh to 10 years old um at family gatherings and even my dad at home <clears throat> He would be like, go get me a beer, please. Actually, he probably wouldn't even say please. Um, but it was our job to fetch the beer uh, for family members and for my father. And so every time we'd go and fetch a beer, we'd pop the top and take a sip on it on the way to delivering it. Um, so that started... Um, the, the very first taste of alcohol and I discovered that I really, really liked it. And I really liked how it made me feel. And um, so uh, I grew up with, um, my dad was an alcoholic, his parents were alcoholics. So I come from a line of alcoholics, alcoholism ran, runs in my family. And, um, so I was already predispositioned genetically to be an alcoholic. Um, I had some early behaviors of 
uh, addiction behaviors um, before the taste of alcohol. And that was, um, I would hide food under my bed um, because part of the abuse was that I would get, if I came to the table crying, I'd get sent to my room without food and I'd not get to eat dinner and I'd have to eat dinner the next morning for breakfast. And so I started hiding food under my bed, started being secretive um, and just uh, basically uh, addict behavior and lying and uh, stealing from my parents um, at an early age. And um, so what also contributed to the anger, the depression growing up um, was that we were physically, verbally, and emotionally abused as children, which also added to the addict behavior. And for example, um, if we were in trouble and my dad told us to grab a belt, we'd end up he'd let us choose, but then he'd tell us which belt to use. And then he would make us pull our pants down and our underpants down. And we were to grab our ankles and he would whip us until he was done being angry. And if we popped up, uh, let go of our ankles, we would get another couple extra whips for good measure. Um, in high school, I was very angry. Uh, my dad would constantly tell me I would never amount to anything, that I was a piece of shit, that uh, I would never be anything. Um, might as well try to stop pleasing him because I would never please him. Uh, he wasn't my friend. He was to feed, clothe, and house me. And that was his responsibility. And um, and also in high school, one day I came home and my parents had been fighting and he had been, my mom had already called the cops a couple times. And so my dad was in my mom's face and I came home and I got in between them and said, you will not hurt my mom. And he pulled off a butcher knife off the wall and pointed it at my throat and said, you will not interfere. This is between me and your mom and you're just a child. And so my mom called the cops again and the cops couldn't do anything because there, was, there weren't any marks. So that started my hate for authority. Um, and then, and uh, once again in high school, um, I didn't drink while, I didn't party with everybody else. Um, I was more the quiet drinker. Um, I drank by myself and uh, then um, fast forwarding um, a little bit um, past the abuse, um, past leaving the house. Um, I was in my early 20s, I was a heavy drinker. Um, I would go to the bars and play pool um, and be sexually promiscuous. Um, that was a part of uh, the bad choices from being an alcoholic. Um, I made terrible choices. I put myself in risky positions. Um, 
and I, I betrayed myself. Basically, um, every time I put myself in a situation like that, every time I used a drug, every time I drank, um, actually in high school, I was just drinking. As a young adult, it was just drinking. I hadn't been introduced to drugs until my uh, late 40s, um, early 50s. And I always joke and say I was a late bloomer in life um, because my heavy drug use didn't start until my late 40s. Um, so in between uh, being a young adult and um, being uh, in my 30s, I got my DUI when I was in, in my 30s. And I remember the public humiliation and embarrassment and shame that, that went with uh, that, and also the financial cost and the strain that it put on my marriage. Um, because my husband had to come and get me from the hospital. And the doctor was like, well, you have a drinking problem. And I'm like, okay, um, no, I don't. I was in denial. <laughs> I, lo I love that uh, answer. Imagine, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, I love it. Um, no, I no, I don't have a problem. You have a problem, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I continued to drink throughout my marriage and... Um, I did a lot of my heaviest drinking through my marriage because I was really unhappy in that relationship. I had married a man that was 28 years older than me, another bad decision from uh, drinking. Um, and I was with him for 11 years and in that relationship, I just was not happy. And I finally at the end realized that I could be happy, but not just with him. And I also learned that you can be in love with, you can, there's a difference between being in love with somebody and loving somebody. And the alcohol gave me the courage to leave, if that made sense. That, um, Makes a lot of sense. And because otherwise um, I, was, I was a quiet person. Um, I became the, the life of the party, happy-go-lucky. Um, and so I, it gave me courage and so I left him and divorced him uh, because he wasn't willing to change. Uh, I asked him to compromise. Um, um, just trying to figure out how much to tell. Um, That's okay. Yeah. In, in the relationship, he had uh, abandoned me uh, emotionally, physically, and intimately. And that increased my drinking exponentially um, because I had been abandoned in that relationship. And being abandoned in that, my parents had abandoned me emotionally. And um, I didn't learn what love was because of my dad being an alcoholic and he I didn't have a good role model of a loving relationship I didn't have um, a good uh, solid relationship with my husband um, because there's of the age gap there's just um, 
I thought I was in love with him, but I wasn't in love with him. And um, I had settled for him because at that time, when I was 21, I figured my self-esteem was so low that I figured that no other man was gonna show interest in me. So I might as well grab this man. And so I did. And um, I didn't believe in divorce. So I stayed in the relationship for 11 years until I figured out what I shared earlier, that I wasn't in love with him, that um, I could be in a, in a friendship relationship with him, but not as a, as a lover. And um, so with that, um, I can still continue to drink uh, throughout the, the next uh, 20 years or so and still was in denial that I had a problem, still in denial that I could control my drinking. And um, I would uh, think to myself, okay, I'm only gonna go and have three beers and play two games of pool. Well, that always ended up to shots and uh, pitchers and umpteen games of pool. And then I'd be so inebriated that, and I would drive drunk and I don't recommend it, but I drove drunk a lot. And um, hence the, uh, the DY. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I was really miserable. I took the next uh, 13 years to work on myself. Um, I stayed single during that time to educate myself, to work on myself, to um, still in denial. Um, I had curbed my drinking, but I was still in denial that I was an alcoholic. And um, I had um, had a uh, near-death experience um, when I was in my 30s. Um, I was getting ready to go play pool and drink, have a night of drinking. But I ended up um, going to go buy a pool stick first and ended, was driving out towards that store and um, I turned, made the decision to turn around and go to the bar instead. And during that process of turning around, I hit a, uh, a white pickup truck going 40 miles an hour and I was going 40 miles an hour. So the total impact collision was 80 miles an hour. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. Um, I got thrown, uh, I didn't get thrown out of the car because of my weight impact of the steering wheel. And I remember at that point going, dear God, I'm not ready to die yet. And um, my forehead had hit the windshield and left a glass bubble. Um, There's numerous other uh, injuries. Um, and at that point I said, you know, God, I will, I will stop drinking. That this is my sign. But as time and, and years went by, I would have fell back into drinking. And as time for the time goes out, then with the more alcohol, the, the more memories fade. 
at least that memory faded because I didn't want to remember that deal I made with God. And um, so coming up to um, being in my 40s, um, I met this uh, acquaintance, uh, I met this friend through an acquaintance of mine. And um, from that day forward, I felt like I was being groomed. And uh, he smoked weed. And at that time, I had no idea that he was into selling cocaine and all this other stuff. But I only uh, knew him to, to smoke weed. And he was the one that introduced me to weed. And um, from that point on, um, I like weed. I still like alcohol, but uh, weed was my new favorite. And so for this person, spent a lot of time with me, uh, teaching me um, how to sell, teaching me, uh, just setting me up to be able to sell so I can supply my own habit. And um, Nobody around me knew, except for my closest best friends, who was were my using buddies. And um, so I was dealing out of my apartment that I was not supposed to, of course, be dealing out of. I was doing drugs in that apartment, which, of course, I was not supposed to be doing. Um, so marijuana, of course, was the gateway drug for other drugs. And this person... This uh, friend, well, so-called friend of mine, introduced me to uh, Ritalin and um, introduced me to uh, the way to in, to take Ritalin. And I became hooked automatically on snorting Ritalin and um, to the point where I went and got my own prescription for for my doctor and claimed I had ADHD and and lied. Um, and uh, so I had my own script and every time I get my script filled, I'd go on a Ritalin run. And on that Ritalin run, uh, I would snort uh, up to 80 milligrams every four hours. And um, also drink energy drinks and smoke pot and um, play play games. Uh, I was an entertainer. I loved entertaining people. So everybody came hung out at my place and, and did drugs. And um, so then not only was I abusing alcohol, I was abusing Ritalin. Not only was I abusing Ritalin, but I had been on, uh, this friend also introduced me to how I could abuse my uh, Dilaudid prescription. And so I started abusing my Dilaudid prescription. And uh, so I was abusing the Ritalin and the Dilaudid at the same time. And I had got to the point where I was uh, smoking the Dilaudid off a of foil snorting the, the smoke off the foil. Um, and that's because I had this friend in my life had taught me all these different ways. And um, so and in each way, I, I 
was instantly hooked on the each new way that he introduced me how to take drugs. And um, so I became instantly addicted to doing it that way. Um, now, this is in my late 40s. I was working on my master's in, in secondary education while I was an addict. And I had gotten to the point where um, I had my tuition and I blew a lot of it, most, almost all of it on alcohol mm. to the point that I was partying so much that I didn't give a, a rat's behind about my schoolwork and I totally blew it all off. And of course I flunked that semester and which was a natural consequence. I didn't like that consequence, but um, the thought, the, what was a cold batch of reality was if I failed out of the master's class, can you imagine the humility and the shame that I would feel explaining to friends, explaining to family, explaining to myself and explaining to anybody of significance in my life why I failed my master's courses. And that scared me uh, off of, out of drinking alcohol. That, and um, <clears throat> so I quit drinking on St. Patrick's Day in 2016. And I've been sober uh, since 2016, which on this March 17th, it was my six year milestone. Oh, wow, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it was a lot of hard work. Um, so that started me an introduction to recovery. And um, so I was still using medical marijuana at that point. Um, I, you know, finagled my doctors into it, you know, lying about this ailment and all of that ailment. Um, just to get the drugs that I could get so I didn't have to pay for out-of-pocket for them because I was on state disability, government disability, and uh, prescriptions are at no cost to me. I don't abuse that system now, but I'm saying I did back then. And so my sponsor uh, was okay with that in the beginning because I was straight up with her and I said, uh, you know, I use medical marijuana. Do you have an issue with it? She said, no, I don't. And then like six months later, she said she had an issue with it and gave me an ultimatum of choosing um, recovery with her or staying out and, and being in active addiction. And the way she did it, I was like, no, screw you. I'm choosing active addiction. Now, had she have handled it a little bit differently, I might have chosen recovery but I was still in denial that the other medications that I was abusing, that I was an addict. I had come to the realization that I was an alcoholic, but I was still an addict because of doing the other drugs that I was doing. And so I, I stayed out and in active addiction until, um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, during active addiction, uh, once again, uh, back into my 40s, um, once again, I was sexually promiscuous. I sold myself, sold my body for uh, 
prescriptions uh, for uh, weed. Um, and I put myself, basically abandoned myself and uh, abandoned God at this point. Um, I had a spiritual void. Um, I was very, and I was in a very, the darkest point in my life and I had struggled with depression my whole entire life, but this was the darkest that I'd ever been. Um, and I had, a, I had a past relationship with God because I had become born again before 2016. Um, but I had not made the choice. I chose the other side of the fence, one side of the wrong side of the fence, instead of being on the right side of the fence. And to me, the right side of the fence is a religion. Um, wrong side of the fence is active addiction. And I tried blending the two. Um, I tried uh, continuing to do my drug use, continuing active addiction, but yet going to church. Mm -hmm. But my lowest point was making a drug deal at church in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. To have no respect for the place and for the, the pastors that have done so much for me. Um, that that fills me with shame as well. And, um, and shame and guilt are a character defect of mine, which I've been praying for to be removed. But some of these uh, stories bring back those intense guilt and shame. Mm, sure. um, and it's an amends that I can't the only amends that I can make for that is to stay in my recovery road, recovery journey. Because if I were to go into that pastor and say, hey, I made a drug deal in, in the sanctuary, that would damage them emotionally. And I, I feel that that's an amends that I just need to not, not make because um, for their mental well-being. Mm. And um, so, and then I just need to, um, I guess, suppose I need to talk to my sponsor about it, but I need to mm. figure out why I'm still carrying this guilt and shame when it's in the past and I've come so far in my recovery. Because um, some things leave a bigger mark on us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Depends yeah. on where we come from as to how big that mark is, too. And I think a lot of it has to do with how, how we're raised as children. For sure. um, whether we're shame-based, I was raised with shame-based parenting where I was shamed at every given breaking moment of every behavior that I did. Um, but uh, so I inflict shame on myself really easy at the drop of a hat. Um, but anyway, um, then uh, along the lines of kind of flashing back and kind of all over the place, but this story okay. reminded me that when I was working on my master's and I was teaching, I didn't think I was going to share this, but I think it's important. And uh, I'm okay with the consequences that it might bring forth. Um, but in student teaching, I was in the middle of a middle and run 
and I started Ritalin before going into student teaching. Mm. And that's my my biggest out of all my addict behaviors. That's my biggest shame of all was putting the my, the students' lives in danger of my making a bad mistake mm. while being you know a bad choice while being on under the influence of a drug. That I'm not, not I'm prescribed but that I abuse. Um, just the different things that couldn't, different stories that could have played out, mm -hmm. um, keep me locked in that shame, and mm -hmm. I need to forgive myself. And through this whole thing, forgiving myself has been incredibly difficult because I don't feel worthy of that forgiveness. I don't feel love. I don't, I love myself now, but sometimes the worthy part gets in the way of forgiving myself. And so I still have a lot of work to do on, on forgiving myself. And I think once that I forgive myself, then I'll be able to move through that shame of, of the stories of the different situations that I put myself mm -hmm. in. Um, so fast forwarding um, to I uh, back in August of 2019, um, like I said, I was snorting 80 milligrams of Ritalin every four hours until the script ran out. And my friend, using friends were like, Ray, you've got to slow down. You've got to, you know, take a step back. This is, you're, you're working towards death. And we're surprised you haven't had a heart attack yet with all the stress you're putting on your heart. And that freaked me out, that statement right there. And that moment, I was like, I was getting ready to fill my next script. And I was like, well, I'm going to go on a last run. And my boyfriend at the time was like, Ray, don't go on a last run. It never turns out well. That scared me. So I actually listened to the, to the wisdom of, of that. And so the next morning I got on the phone and I called my doctor's office and I came totally clean to my doctor. And I said, I have been abusing my Dilaudid and my Ritalin. I didn't tell him how I was abusing it, but I shared with him and made an appointment to see him and um, share with him that I've been lying to him for years and that um, I am coming clean to uh, make things right, to get the help that I need. And so he had me bring in my scripts and along with me to the appointment in the uh, MA, walked me over to the recycling bin and she held it open and, and said, go ahead and drop it in. You have to be the one to do this. I can't do this for you. And so I was like, okay, I got to do this. But then I'm like thinking in my head, the attic part of my brain is going, well, I could sell these on the street and get like a hundred bucks for the bottle. And I'm like, no, we're here to get help. We're here to hand over the scripts that have caused me to damage my health. And so I reached them and I dropped those bottles of Ritalin and Dilaudid into that recycling bin. And the freedom that came from that was immense. 
it was like the slave, this the slave string to to that medication was cut and severed, and I no longer felt bound uh, by those drugs. Um, I uh, um, during after that uh, time, um, I um, had been back in religion and um i had come clean to my pastors and admitted to using before going to church um i still i'm still floored at the lack of respect that i had for uh places and people and things um and so i uh, after confessing to my uh, sharing with my pastors that I had been using that I'm an addict, um, and I rededicated my life to Christ. And I said to I said to God, I was like, "This I'm handing this over to you. This is not my disease any longer. Um, I'm no longer alone in this in this journey." And um, being born again gave me such a sense of freedom as well and uh, to know that I no longer had to be alone that I no longer had that spiritual void that dark place um, I was no longer in that dark place through the freedom of releasing the, the prescriptions from releasing the lies opening the closet so the skeletons can fall out so to say um, accepting Christ and being river baptized uh, that August. And so my actual clean date is August 22nd of 19. So this coming August, I'll have had three years uh, totally clean off of all drugs. Congratulations. Um, thank you. It's been hard work. Um, well, it must have been quite intense, the river baptism. Yeah, it, it was, yeah. it was very um, spiritual um, is a good way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And um, being dunked under the cold water and coming up, I felt like a new person. Mm -hmm. I felt like the sins had been washed away, that I was actually on a clean slate, that God had given me a second chance and I'm getting chills. Yeah, no doubt. Um, he gave me a second chance and I told him that I'm not going to fuck this up and I decided to be I put my I brought myself back to the rooms and uh, became committed to my recovery and became committed to attending meetings regularly um, and um, it took me a while to get another sponsor. I kept asking women to sponsor me and they kept saying no. Because in the meetings, uh, um, anyway, uh, I kept asking this woman and that woman and another woman and they kept telling me no. And I'm like going, oh, I'm just trying to find a sponsor. I'm trying to do this right. So finally I found a sponsor who said yes. And so I started working the steps with her and um, 
when I sat down and did step one, um, we admit that we're and we admit that we have a disease um, of addiction. And I was first question, uh, I was like, okay, now the scholarly part of me was like, I, I gotta look up what addiction really is translated in the dictionary. And then I had to look up what, what an alcoholic was or alcoholism was. And then after I read the basic text and read the part in the, the, the step working guide, and I'm like, wow, holy cow, I'm an addict. I, I had to wrap my brain around that. I was like, yeah, but growing up uh rutledges didn't have any uh anything wrong with them rutledges were perfect according to my dad <laughs> we, had to, we had to have a persona that everything was perfect in hunky-dory life well um i was like that just blew off that uh the top off of, of that image that i have a disease called addiction and once, once I said that to myself several times, it sunk in and I'm like, wow, now I can actually change my life. Now I can actually move on and work the steps and um, really process and uh, do the, the work and the, the, um, the spiritual work and putting the spiritual principles to work in my everyday life. And um, I've been through a couple of sponsors um, since that one sponsor. And I had to keep looking for the sponsor that was the right fit. And I kept thinking I had them, but then they would, two of them said that they didn't have time for me after all. Mm-hmm. And so that triggered abandonment issues. Um, but then I found the sponsor that I have now, and I had to go through those emotions to get to this this sponsor that is um, the most amazing person uh, that I know in in the program. And um, I am I've worked my uh, way all the way through the first twelve steps, first round of steps. I'm now uh, at step. Uh, seven I get to read step seven this week um, I am I attend meetings every night um, I'm starting to attend in-person meetings at noon and I'm involved in service work um, I have committed uh, basically my whole entire life every aspect of it even uh, religion wise um, I am I run a rigid program and I have to run a rigid program because if I get lax or if I get complacent then I'll go right back out to using mm-hmm. and I've worked too hard I've got four sponsees under me if I go out and I use then I uh, number one I disappoint myself I disappoint my higher power. I disappoint my sponsees. Just the emotional aftermath of going back out would be too much 
that would be too much for me to bear, to be the responsible bearer of that, of, of that catastrophe. And that keeps me from relapsing. And um, also the desire to keep working on my, my uh, to keep working on the steps. I'm doing my second steps on my food addiction. Mm -hmm. And addiction is addiction, no matter what mm -hmm. the what, what what the behavior. Yeah. And um, I had I have a food addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I had a sex addiction. Um, and the I left that. Uh, I left that lifestyle behind when I became born again and when I became river baptized. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, how do you, how are you finding the um, steps working on the food? How is it? How do you find? Uh, has it had any sort of impact yet? Um. Yeah, it has. It's made me more aware of the bad habits that I have, mm -hmm. especially with sugar. My my main issue with food is sugar. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's funny that I mentioned sugar because I just binged on sugar today, but being nervous. Mm -hmm. um, but food, with my food addiction, I am becoming more and more aware and conscious of what I'm putting into my body. I am mm -hmm. paying more attention to the effects that it has on my body. For example, um, for me, sugar causes inflammation in my joints and in my muscle tissues. Mm -hmm. And so after I've been on sugar, then I hurt like I got hit by a Mack truck. Mm -hmm. See, um, I I need to keep working on on stopping myself before I get to that point. But I still have a lot of work to do on my behaviors of my food addiction. And every time I think that I've gotten, you know, okay, I'm an environment environmental eater. Um, I've removed all sugar from my house. And then I found reasons to bring it back in again. That justification that we do as an addict, self-justification. Well, but I need this as a reward. I don't have anything that I reward myself with, so I'll reward myself with sugar. That kind of thinking. Gotcha. Um, but... Um, Oh, are those kids in the background? Yep. Nice. You have a family today? No, those are just neighborhood kids running through the hallway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. I'm just curious about uh, what, how your life is today, right? Well, I live in, oh yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I live in a um, low-income housing project, okay. and I'm in the disabled section. Hmm. 
and um, the kids are not supposed to be unchaperoned, but that never happens. <laughs> kids have but a way just, of outrunning their chaperones. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah. at least they're making happy sounds. So that's true. Uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of noise here. I, I went from living in a fourplex to living with people all around me, above me, below me. And it took a while to get used to that. Um, I had two years ago, and I, I now clicking more into my um, recovery story. Um, in two years um, since my since I uh, became serious about recovery and started working a serious recovery program, I fell and broke my knee and broke my femur above my knee. I broke my knee in three different places. Oh, no. So I um, had uh, my first surgery to put hardware in. Um, the second surgery to take hardware out and put it back in because it kept breaking. So in, in like I said, in four years, in two years, I've had four surgeries. And um, there's been some that have had complications. Like last summer, I had complications um, where I ended up in the hospital with that when they opened me up and took the hardware out, they found a bone infection. Hmm. So I uh, was on heavy duty IV antibiotics for six weeks. And uh, in between the uh, subacute facility that I was in, I was in for a total of two and a half months this last summer, wow. and um, I was in there this fall uh, for one and a half months, and um, each time I stayed in the subacute, I ended up with some sort of infection or another and ended up spending time back in the hospital. Um, and in the hospital, they just went ahead, they had me drugs left and right. And I had to, um, I had to tell them no at one point because they wanted to do this procedure to find out where, oh yeah, and uh, not only did I have a broken bone, me and a broken femur, during one of the procedures, I broke the ischmius, which is a pelvic bo a bone in your pelvic uh, pelvis. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. And it's like, only me, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they wanted to do a procedure that required a large needle to be inserted in, into the uh, area. And they wanted to give me fentanyl. Mm. And they're all acting like, oh, well, it's just fentanyl. It's, it's not going to do anything. And I'm like, no, do you have anything other than fentanyl? because um, I just was I just was not gonna take fentanyl. And they're like, well, you're on oxycodone, so what's the difference? And it's like, well, uh, fentanyl is an extremely heavier drug mm -hmm. and it's not one I'm comfortable taking and I don't have time to call my sponsor. So the answer is no. So she's like, and I said, well, she goes, well, Dilaud is the same thing. And I said, I can't take Dilaud. Dilaud was my drug of choice. Mm. 
And she's like, yeah, but you're on oxycodone. I don't get it. And I said, finally said, look, I'm in NA. I'm in recovery. I'm working in program. I'm only on oxycodone because it's doctor prescribed, because I had a serious surgery. And uh, I am not going to compromise my recovery for you to give me a drug that I don't need to take. And so I did the procedure without the fentanyl. And the oxycodone had that worked just fine for the procedure. And um, it's just, it just floors me at how easy they just hand you the fentanyl. We'll just medicate you. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a medication to take care of whatever's hurting you. Mm-hmm. And um, so my last surgery was October 15th, and they put in the hardware again. And I had been at uh, Regency. Uh, um, the advocate facility. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was um, doing physical therapy there and doing good. And um, I had uh, wanted off the oxy, so um, I didn't realize that methadone was opiate. And so I basically I wanted off the um, oxycodone to be off of opiates altogether. Well, the doctor didn't explain to me that I thought, well, uh, let's try methadone because it had pain property and not realizing that methadone is an opiate. Um, it uh, works really, it worked really good for me. And um, I talked the doctor into increasing the dose. And that was a big mistake because um, the week of October, of uh, December, yeah, December 2nd, the nurse came in to give me my morning medications that I like my meds early. She came in and she found me non-responsive and foaming at the mouth. And I have no recollection of, of that. The next thing I know, I'm waking up in ICU two and a half days later and they're going, do you know where you are? And I'm like, no, I don't. And what happened? And they said, we believe you had an overdose of uh, the methadone. And so I was in the hospital for about eight days. And wow. they took me off of all my meds and gradually added them back on. But um, I would say, oh, I didn't have an overdose. My body just said enough. Well, that's mm-hmm. what an overdose is. Exactly. Is your body saying enough? Mm-hmm. And um, I just, and it wasn't something, I, I put it in my mouth, but it was, I was responsible for that because I had the doctor increase the dose, but I didn't know that it was going to have that effect on me. So, mm-hmm. but I still blame myself because I'm the one that took it. I'm the one that asked for it. And um, I uh, I just feel responsible. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a tough time though, right? Going through surgeries and stuff. I've had multiple back surgeries in sobriety and 
yeah, you really have to walk carefully through all the meds and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I appreciate the kind of care and attention you gave it. You tried to give it anyway. Like it was, the truth is, if you've never done methadone, why would you think it would be bad? <laughs> right? Exactly. And it's the same um, as if you never tried, if you had never tried hydromorphine and you asked for hydromorph because it was not morphine. Um, I mean, lots of times people just think the lesser is better, right? And, right. Yeah. And sometimes it is and most, but sometimes it's not when it comes to drugs for us, right? Right. So um, I went, um, before coming home, um, I had had a script that I had filled and um, one of my friends had put a bug in my ear um, that I could sell it off the streets and get a lot of money for it. And I went, oh, heck no, I'm not going home to that and put that in my head. And so I called my sponsor and I asked my sponsor to, to dump the medication um, down the toilet and so that I didn't go home to having that medication on hand. Mm -hmm. um, when I came home December 10th um, of last year, um, I uh, um, wanted off the methadone really badly because I didn't want to be on any opiates at all doctor prescribed or other and it's important to note that this drug use was under doctor prescribed and most of the time under uh, observation in a facility um, but when I came home I was on the methadone but I started immediately weaning myself off but it was so hard to wean off it is a very strong drug and I highly do not recommend ever trying it or ever if you're on it to try to go off of it. Um, but I'm not a doctor, so I, I can't tell you what to do. Um, my experience, all I can share is my experience is that it was so hard. I had to, um, when I would go down in a dose, I have to cut I went down from 10 milligrams to five milligrams. And then I'd have to cut the, the five milligram in half and cut them into quarters and gradually reduce each quarter mm -hmm. until I was down to a quarter, then I was able to leap off of it. Mm -hmm. And the effects of going off were severe. Yeah. And it's a feeling that I don't ever want to be on again. I'm no. in fact, I hope I don't have any more surgeries mm -hmm. for a long time because I don't want to be on opiates any longer. I don't yeah. like how I feel on them. I don't like how I think on them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the choices I make on them. Yeah. And um, so now I'm off of doctor prescribed opiates I'm totally clean. Um, I do have uh, psych, psych meds um, mm -hmm. for my depression, but as far as um, abusing prescription medication and, and using street drugs, um, that's no longer happening. I'm totally clean and I'm uh, definitely um, feeling really good about life. Um, I am productive. I pay my own rent with the exception of this last 
uh, this math last month, but um, <clears throat> I pay my own bills. I take care of myself. Um, I stay in recovery. I uh, spend time with my sponsor. I spend time with uh, members of the fellowship and um, life is life is pretty good right now. Excellent. In fact, I'd have to say it's the best that my life has been ever because I've got good things coming into my life now, whereas before lots of negative things kept happening and I kept wondering why. Well, it was because of all the bad choices. Life is made up of the choices we make and the decisions, decisions and choices and consequences. And I'm now making the right decisions and I take a step back and I say, okay, if I'm in a mental crisis, I, um, I pray to God first and then I call my sponsor and then I reach out to other members of the fellowship and it gets me through. And meeting attendance for me is huge. I have to be in a meeting daily. Um, the support and the love that I get from this particular group um, is just amazing. It's one of the most loving groups that I've ever experienced. Um, most compassionate, loving, and unconditional love at that. And it keeps me coming back to this meeting. And sometimes I feel like I'm addicted to this meeting. Um, that's just a joke. Um, I guess maybe it's not too funny. It's actually quite funny for you and I, because we're both addicts, yeah. but other people might not get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> other people might not understand, but you know what? It is what it is, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's better to be addicted to a meeting, man, than those chemicals, I'll tell you. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, the last night, the, this last Friday, um, I took the night off from the meeting and did self-care. And self-care is a huge vital part of recovery as well. And that's, um, that uh, helps refuel my jets, so to say. Oh, there's a kitty. Yes, there's a kitty in the background. Now the kids are quieted down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, um, yeah, oh, the self-care. Um, I had a, a gal come and cut my hair and, and dyed it purple. And I thought, I'm going to do something fun. So I had her dye it, dye it purple. And not the whole oh, right thing, on. just highlights. I can see some purple in there from here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looks good. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Feels good. And yeah. for once, where I was going with that was for once taking that night off and doing self care, I did not feel guilty uh, yes. for taking the night off. So for me, that was a milestone. So now that uh, I've been in this wheelchair uh, for two years, and um, another milestone for me 
um, is I walked 117 steps yesterday. Oh, wow. Good for you. And for not having walked since, um, since last, some last fall, mm. since about end of summer, beginning of fall. Oh, wow. Yeah. So slow I'm and on steady, the road. Eh? Yep, slow and steady. That's right. Right on. So if there was anything that you could tell anybody out there that was maybe not in recovery yet, what would you, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them that, um, gosh, you are worthy of love. You are worthy of recovery. And you're worthy of success. Right on. Thank you. And so are you. Well, thank you. You're very welcome, Rayanne. Is there anything else you want to tell us? Um, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's been awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I'm trying to think. I don't think I left anything out, but probably once we're off the air, I'll be like, oh. <laughs> That's usually how it goes. People will remember stuff after the fact. But it's all good. It was great. I really appreciate getting to know you. And are you uh, down in Washington as well? Yes, I'm okay. in Washington State in Wenatchee, the Apple capital of the world. Wenatchee, you know what? I think I've driven through Wenatchee or by it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, thank you again for doing this. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and it was it's uh, been fun.